Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. As we draw closer to Halloween, the horror fans among us look forward to digging out spooky tales and seeking supernatural thrills. But while the scares might be new, the monsters are invariably old. Vampires, werewolves, revenants, they've all been the subject of stories throughout the ages. So how do you take an age-old legend and breathe new life, or perhaps new undead vitality, into characters and tropes that have been done for years? Joining us tonight is Vivian Shaw. Vivian's Dr. Greta Helsing novels give vampires a makeover. She is not only gender swap one of literature's most famous vampire hunters, but she's also focused more on the doctor role, making Greta a healer rather than a hunter. Vivian, thank you for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your books. Hi, uh, I am extremely happy to be here. I am the author of the Greta Helsing novels, Strange Practice, Dreadful Company and Grave Importance. And I am, in fact, working on more Greta Helsing material, but I don't know when or if it will see the light of day. I am not American, but I have lived in America since 1987. And I enjoy writing about found family, what it means to be a person, and the nature of reality and how reality can be skewed in different ways by different people. Excellent. So in your first book in the series, it's the monsters who are all just trying to scrape together a living and a lifestyle, while the humans are actually the bad guys in the form of a cult. So what made you want to set out to present a traditional monstrous population as sympathetic? It's partially because I am so tired of monsters being stupid that I wanted to see what it would be like if a monster was sensible and just tried to get along and not try and sit on skulls, like thrones of skulls of blood and destroy everything because they felt like it. I mean, why do vampires have to do that? They don't. So I came up with an idea for National Novel Writing Month back in 2004. And it was the idea of how many characters from classic horror literature can I fit into one story? The answer was too many which is why the book that eventually turned into Strange Practice had a lot of its cast cut out. But it was interesting to consider the old characters from well-known horror literature and imagine what it might be like for them in the real world today. What kind of challenges they face, what kind of habits they might fall into, where they might live. Um, and it kind of went from there. Uh, Writing about monsters being monsters is kind of obvious, and doing, working in a contrast like that is what I think underlies the most compelling types of fiction. The juxtaposition of the mundane and the extraordinary is actually under a lot of my work. So was the mundane versus the extraordinary the reason why you chose to pit your monsters against humans? I mean, obviously, humans with extra strength and added weapons and things like that, but still at the core of it, humans, rather than, say, monsters against other monsters. 
Partially, and partially it's because monster hunters are obviously the heroes in most horror literature, like the original Abraham Van Helsing. Um, but what if instead of being the people who made things safe and got rid of the scary monsters, they were in fact the scary monsters. I thought that would be interesting to play with. And so I came up with a particularly unpleasant military religious sect, which is partly based off of the Livonian Brothers of the Sword, but I added the Mercury Arc Rectifier myself. That was definitely not the Livonian Brothers of the Sword. But yeah, it's again, it comes back to the context and contrast of these two character and meaning and setting. I was just wondering if you're talking about monsters being monsters is kind of that's, you know, done to death kind of thing. But it feels like some of what you were trying to get at was kind of looking at kind of the term monsters and what that actually means and just being different or, you know, being a vampire doesn't necessarily make you a monster. It's your actions and and what you actually choose to do that can make you a monster. Yes, absolutely. It's what it means to be a person and what it means to be a monster are major themes throughout the entire series. Um, Greta uses the term monster in its descriptive rather than pejorative sense. And that is because she lives in this weird liminal space between worlds in which monsters do not have to be monstrous unless they choose to do so. And this is not a thing that she can really talk about to almost any other human, except for the ones who also know the big secret. I was really interested in the books where you have characters from literature. You have Lord Ruthven and Varney, and two well-known vampires from literature. And yet you've kind of give them brand new personalities. And like you say, it's trying to figure out how a monster might actually work within society with monster being a, just a term and you spend a lot of time in the books with these two vampires kind of trying to come to terms with what they are and where they fit in society almost as Greta is trying to come to terms with where she is and where she fits within the monstrous society that's absolutely true um both Ruthven and Varney absolutely detest their origin material they consider it basically a giant sack of libel. Ruthven did do some bad things when he was less sophisticated than he is now, and he will be the first to admit that, but a lot of the stuff that's in Polidori's book is just... He he gets really annoyed whenever anyone mentions it, and it's the same with Sir Francis Varney, whose origin story is even worse and much longer. <laughs> I had to read all of Varney the Vampire or The Feast of Blood for writing this series. And I did a series of recaps of it on my website. And I think that made it possible for me to get through without going completely insane. There's so much Varney. But the idea that those characters don't have to be the way they are portrayed, like that that could just be a fairly inaccurate biography of those characters, and that they share a name, they share a background, they share an origin, but they don't have to be limited to what the horror writers made them. 
I have to say that you've got some fantastic characters in there, but Ruthven is my particular favourite. I mean, Varney's growing on me because he's he's quite soft and sweet, but I just love how Ruthven just kind of owns his vampirism and um, stalks around and whatever. And you, you've written them brilliantly. But then when it comes to book two, instead of having humans as the villains, this time you've actually gone for vampires and it is kind of vampires and Helsing versus vampires. Um, so I wondered, after taking such pains to make vampires the protagonists and show them so sympathetically in the first one, why did you decide, I'm going to go back to having vampires as the villains? Um, and how did you ensure that when you did do that, you came up with some refreshing threats that either hadn't been done before or that you could do in a, a new way? Well, the point about the vampires is that they're basically people. And like any other people, you have some real jerks and you have some sensible people who don't run around biting people's heads off. Uh, what I really wanted to do is I really wanted to send up the normal type of urban vampire, the kind that sparkles and has like all of their clothes come from Hot Topic and they name themselves something stupid because they think it would be spooky. Like there was centuries ago, um, Joan and Vasquez did a comic, which is called Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, in which there was a character called Anne Gwish who was exactly this type of, like, vampire. Oh, she wasn't a vampire. She wanted to be, but she was this character. She was the amazingly pretentious, obnoxious, body glitter-wearing, if I paint my turtle black, will it be spooky kind of asshole. So I wanted to see... I wanted to write some assholes. So I got to write some terrible vampires doing terrible vampire things. The kind of thing that Ruthven is just like, oh, for God's sake, you're totally ruining everything for the rest of us. So it was a lot of fun to let myself just play with the the other end of the stereotype. So you mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of these vampire stories, they don't seem to go into anything new or different. But at the same time, vampire stories do continue to be really, really popular, so why do you think that they are so popular? And, and you know, you've obviously come up with uh, a new way to explore the idea of vampires, but what other kinds of stories are there to be told about something that's been around for so long and has so many stories and iterations of them? There's always going to be a story to be told. Like, as long as humans are around, they will be telling stories. And if there is a finite number of stories in the universe it's still a really large number. <laughs> so yeah, I think there will always be vampire stories. And the appeal, in my mind, the appeal of the vampire is that they're sexy, or at least they think they're sexy. And the idea of a sophisticated, suave, attractive, articulate monster that wants to basically French kiss your neck and also suck out all of your blood is much more appealing than some of the other types of monsters that you could be menaced by. So people like vampires because they're attractive. People like vampires because they're exciting. People like vampires because they look good. <laughs> they're like just aesthetic creatures in a way that say the werewolf or the mummy is just not. Um, like there will always be vampire stories. And there's also around the world, there's so many different types of vampire and all of those different types of vampire do different things in the cultural mythos way they were originally made up. And, like, it's such a hugely varied field that 
I have no problem with my vampires being completely and utterly unacceptable to someone who thinks vampires should be a certain different way. That's everyone makes their own. I was going to say, this is a wonderful opportunity to talk a bit about our favourite and least favourite vampire tropes, because, I mean, I think vampires changed completely with the publication of Twilight, and that spawned enormous amounts of, well, fan material, but also a lot of jokes about how snowflakey they became, you know, and so sparkly and how lame um, in comparison to the kind of the original terrifying much more monstrous beast so the kind of sexy part was you know that was that became like I suppose they're kind of ideal rather than this monstrous blood-sucking creature so um but I mean obviously that was some years ago and we've moved past that and we've seen more uh vampires I feel like they they can never really <laughs> you can't keep them down what a terrible pun but hey <laughs> <laughs> with Buffy with Twilight like, there's there so many different angles here but I thought it'd be really fun to like kind of ask not just you Vivian but I suppose all the rest of us like what's what's the kind of favorite and least favorite parts of vampire behavior I think it's really interesting to see how the mythos has changed over the years. And there are certain points where it changed that you can absolutely pinpoint why that change occurred. The bursting into flames in sunlight trope for Dracula did not exist before 1922 when Murnau made the film Nosferatu. Prior to that, if you read the source material, Bram Stoker's actual book, Dracula could walk abroad in sunlight. He just doesn't like it very much, and some of his powers are not as strong as they would be in darkness, but he has no problem walking around. And after Murnau, that was sort of solidified in a lot of people's versions of the vampire mythos. But like my least favorites, I think, would be the stupid vampire contacts, the wrinkly foreheads that they develop like in Buffyverse, that's unnecessary. You don't need to change your eye color and develop a Klingon forehead to bite a person. You can really just find do that in your human seeming. Um, the, the bursting into flames and sunlight and the not appearing in mirrors are kind of annoying too. But there are some that I don't see very much that I would kind of like to play with. One of them is the compulsion to count things. Like, if you spill a bunch of rice on the floor in front of a vampire, under some versions of the story, he or she will be compelled to count them all. So you can sort of just drop stuff on the floor and then walk away, and the vampire will stop chasing you because they're like, must count all the things. And I seldom see them turning into mist or wolves or eagles. Bats is fairly standard. Even though there's there's an interesting differentiation between the way Pratchett did the vampire bat thing and the way I do it. Pratchett's vampires don't turn into one bat because the amount of mass of the human form will not fit into one single Desmodus rotundus. They turn into a flock of bats, which is hilarious, but also makes a lot of sense. So I, I really like the bat part, but I wish we could see more of mist. Mist is useful. I uh, I also remember Pratchett, didn't he do Carpe Jugulum, where the vampires could just fly because I'm pretty sure they carry Agnes around and threaten to, to drop her every now and again. So I think I think Pratchett kind of picked and choose what he likes as well, depending on where his vampires come from. 
I think that's, yeah, everyone does that. But that was really interesting to see his take on vampires. I have to say that I'm with you on the counting. I I really love Buffy growing up. And when my daughter is old enough, I fully intend to show her all the Buffy verse. But I do kind of feel that stakes are almost overdone now. They're kind of like the cure-all. As long as you've got a stake or something like that, then it's it's kind of almost lazy writing these days to try and think about it. But I love the idea that you can stop this deadly predator who could snap your neck with his little finger and he has to stop and count some spilled rice. I think there's a lot of mileage in that that people haven't um, haven't explored yet. But it also reminded me of when I was younger, I watched a film, which I cannot get hold of these days, called Mr. Vampire. I think it was a a Chinese film that sort of looked at the the Chinese legends of vampire. And in that, the vampires jumped. They didn't fly after you or run after you. They jumped. And it was just wonderful watching these characters running away from like these very vicious jumping creatures. Oh, it was just it was just wonderful. I I think there need to be more jumping vampires within literature, to be honest. Yeah, I remember the hopping ghost thing. I think that's, if that's not exactly what you're talking about, it's close to it. When I first read that, I was so charmed. I was like, oh, they hop. (laughs) Boing, 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 boing. That was true. Yeah, it was like that. Maybe it was a ghost in Mr. Vampire then, but I do remember it all being tied up in that mythology. But yeah, hopping ghosts, hopping vampires. We just need more hopping monsters, I feel. I agree. We also need more vampire watermelons, which are also a thing. Watermelons. Yes, I learned this from Pratchett and I thought this is ridiculous. I must go and look it up. So I looked it up. Um, They're watermelons that have some red markings on the rind, which apparently some very superstitious people regard as evidence of vampirism. And they, they don't seem to do much other than roll around and make sort of like burl noises. But in Pratchett's words, I think it was, perhaps they suck back. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. I don't remember that from my Pratchett reading. But yeah, vampire watermelons or vampire fruit in general. Oh, that, that's got to be a kid's story waiting to be told, surely. <laughs> okay, I mean, one thing that I love about vampires, which is, um, I don't know if it's going to single me out as the odd one, but... I really, really love that historically a lot of the the famous vampires have been male. And what I loved is that you kind of have the almost the femme fatale type trope where the man is using his sexuality, his, his like just innate sexiness to seduce these women. And I just found that it was really fun because most of the time, women in these kinds of roles, you know, it's like, oh, women use their sexuality as a kind of uh, getting what we want or, you know, that kind of thing. But vampires showed that men could do the same thing, that men could use their sexiness to get what they want. And yeah, yeah what they want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was waiting for you to bring up Gary <laughs> Oldman. <laughs> you were all waiting for me to bring up Gary Oldman. I did not want to disappoint <laughs> But that's the thing. Like, it's just, it seems like in historically a lot of stories that we see have, you know, whatever the the sexual creature who is a, you know, representation of evil, whether or not she's, you know, some kind of Eve figure or something, a tempting, temptress kind of thing. Vampires, to me, showed the opposite, that we could see that as 
men being just as goddamn sexy and naughty and tempting as as the kind of traditional Eve-like temptress. So that for me is what I've always loved about vampires. And, you know, Lucy likes Gary Oldman. I mean, I was I was definitely a Spike girl from Buffy. Um, oh, oh, yes, but, thank you. Know, you. Thank you. I mean, yeah, he's like so hot. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I really love about vampires. I also really love that. And I love getting to slightly subvert it with Ruthven and Grisai because I had actually, when I first started writing this, I had no idea if Ruthven was ace or gay or straight, whatever, because he finds very few people with whom he could share life experience. So it's not like he dates. So when I, in, when I meet up Grisai, I was like, okay, this is exactly why this character exists because they are perfect together. They are the unsuitable boyfriends. And I love that they can be unsuitable boyfriends and very flamboyant and also very sexy. And I, that gives me glee every time I get to write that. Now we've talked an awful lot about vampires in your books, but they are very much secondary to the fantastic main protagonist, which is Greta Helsing. Uh, she's a woman in a world of monsters, but she's one that tries to help them. Now, you say the name Helsing, particularly Dr. Helsing, and you naturally think of Dr. Van Helsing from the original literature. Very famous man, very famous vampire hunter. But instead here, we have a very famous doctor who is actually a physician who helps monsters rather than hunt them. So why did you want to take what was seen as a traditionally strong male role of vampire hunter and turn it into a strong female role, but one that helps rather than hunts? Well, partially this has to do with when I wrote what would become Strange Practice, which was back in 04, it was called The Underglow, which is a way better title, but that's another story. Um, I wanted very much to shove all of these characters from classic lit into this story and make it work. So everyone, the main characters are all either descendants of or actually those characters themselves. August Cranswell is the descendant of a family that were also vampire hunters back in the day. Greta Helsing is a descendant of a family that was the famous vampire hunter back in the day. So it's like, I want to keep the theme of the original horror stuff going, but also translate that into a way that makes more sense in the, the modern world. And I always want to write what are largely self-insert medical characters because I wanted to be a doctor, but I just didn't have the math for it. So I play one in books and I write them in books and it's really much more like enjoyable but like so there was always going to be a female physician in this story because there that's another thing that shows up in almost everything i write is a female physician character and i thought well why not make her a helsing and see where i go with that and her first name is actually due to a movie called shadow of the vampire which stars john malkovich as frederick murnau and it's about the making of Nosferatu. It's brilliant. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely should go see it right now. And one of the actors in within the production of Nosferatu is named Greta Schroeder. So I was like, ah, 
perfect. First name, Greta. There we go. So it was kind of like an in-joke almost to myself, but I really liked it and it stuck. I mean, Greta is a very strong female protagonist in your novels, but in the first books, she's surrounded mostly by men and monsters. So given that women are traditionally seen as weaker than men, and that humans are often seen as weaker than monsters, how did you ensure that Greta holds her own against such disadvantages and prejudices? That's a good question. Um, I did not set out to write a strong female protagonist. I set out to to write a doctor who was good at what she did and lived in a very strange space between two worlds and had to negotiate that every single day. And... I also like writing competence porn, so she had to be good at what she did. And that meant that she would get the respect and the support that she would need to make this career work. The other aspect of that is her father was a very well-known supernatural physician in his own right. So when he retired and left the practice to her, the name recognition was already there, and they trusted her because, hey... Her dad was a really good doctor, and clearly the younger generation is also going to do a good job, and we can trust her. The issue of trust is absolutely huge in the monster world and the liminal space between the monster world and the human world, because it's like, keep them secret, keep them safe, is basically how that works. Anyone in the supernatural world who knows that all of that monsters, etc., exist, has to keep that to themselves because otherwise we get pitchforks and torches and nobody wants that. So there's a lot of responsibility built into the position that she inherited. And with that comes people's trust and a solid integration into that weird community. I really liked your comment about writing competency porn, because one of the things I liked in book two, which really stuck with me, was when they're in the middle of a battle and one of the um, good vampires gets hurt and another vampire goes and fetches Greta and basically goes, I know we're in the middle of this big thing with loads of magic, but can you just come and help me like stitch him back together? And I really liked how she couldn't necessarily hold her own when it came to strength or speed or anything like that. But even in the heat of battle, she was still using her skills and still being helpful and supportive and not just running around and sort of doing the minor jobs. I really liked how you wrote that part into her character. That was partially because she was terrified out of her wits and knowing what she was doing, treating a sucking chest wound in the middle of a pitched battle, she had something to do that she could do and that she she was needed and she could do the thing that she was needed to do unlike engage in hand-to-hand combat, which is not a thing she could do. So having something like that to cling to in the middle of all of that terror was extremely helpful for Greta. So she was able to focus on that and not what was happening around her so much. And also I liked getting the chance to have the girl, Emily, be actually useful. I was like, yes, here is how you treat a sucking chest wound in a battlefield. I, I just like that scene. I think that's also just generally quite a nice um, take on it when you do have the, you know, the difference between her heritage being vampire hunters and very specifically sewing, you know, the the actually saving things rather than destroying things, um, which kind of makes me think of what we were talking about before, where 
you know, vampires don't necessarily have to be monstrous, just like humans can choose to be hunters, they could choose to be healthcare workers, we can choose to be marketing professionals, although I don't know why I, I chose that. I it's not even that interesting. But anyway. <laughs> um but it's interesting when it comes to vampires because as you mentioned, they come from horror and they're steeped in being a creature that is terrifying and that has come from this genre that is meant to terrify us and have us quaking in our stylish yet affordable boots and uh, points to anyone who got the Buffy reference. Um, <laughs> but now I feel like vampires have, you know, we've moved past those traditional, yeah, the, the, the horror origin has sort of Move, we've moved away from it and instead we have things like you know you have things in Pratchett you have what we do in the shadows you know vampires can be funny um they can be fun they can be romance um you know rather than something terrifying you know we've we've got all these different changes to the vampire mythos and I'm just wondering if there's anything about say you know, as you were talking about, like the you know what it means to be human. I mean, what are we saying about the nature of choice and the nature of, I don't know, nature versus nurture, and and how we've changed the vampire mythos as it has moved from being something utterly terrifying into being, well, they're just creatures that have different personalities and can respond to the world around them in different ways. Yeah, I like the fact that that is becoming part of the idea of the vampire dialogue, as it would be. It definitely does have a lot, it owes a lot to Pratchett, because one of the things he does so very well in the Discworld books is normalize the abnormal. So you have black ribbon or vampires who have sworn off human blood, and therefore they just are members of society, and nobody really hates them that much anymore. But you also have vampires like the ones in Carpe Jugulum who definitely want to suck out all your blood and do nasty things. It's freeing the vampire to act as a person with their own agency, their own preferences, their own mistakes. I think that's a really interesting and hopeful trend. Like the idea that we don't have to cling to an outmoded stereotype of what a person or a monster or like a specific type of monster happens to be, they can be who they want to be. And that's definitely a undercurrent in my books. We started this episode talking about how monsters such as vampires and werewolves were age-old legends and have been updated throughout the times. So I wondered what the challenges you've had of writing a vampire into modern society. Because, I mean, the first thing that I thought about is covering up the deaths and how they get blood is one thing, but if they do accidentally kill someone, it, it's a lot harder than it was in, say, like the 18th century to cover it up. But what were the particular things that you thought about when you were creating Greta's World? Well, the death thing is a big part of it. Uh, in Ruthven's version, like in his moral code, any vampire who kills when they feed is a vampire with some severe impulse problems. You absolutely do not need to kill anyone. Also, this is why this is why I hate stupid vampires, because they do stupid things like kill people or like 
kill multiple people in a week or develop some kind of like there's a flu epidemic or everyone has pernicious anemia all of a sudden. No, don't do that. Be smart about the way you feed. Don't take much from any individual person and just be sensible about it. And that's, it is always frustrated me when I read the kind of vampire story where the vampire is like, hi, I'm eating your entire town. Oh, you have found me with a pitchfork and a torch. How could this have happened? It's like, I, I want this to work. And the way it could work is if they are judicious about it and conscientious and don't make stupid mistakes. The problems with being a vampire in the modern world are, one, you don't age. So every mm, couple decades, maybe, you have to go abroad for complicated plastic surgery, or you catch something and die, but your cousin who looks just like you shows up to live in your house. So there's a lot of fudging the who are you and how old are you actually, and why don't you get any older? Um other than that, the the UV light thing is a problem, which is less of a problem in Britain than it, it could be because of the number of cloudy days that there are, which I really thought that Stephanie Meyer did a great job on that one. I'm not a fan of Twilight for a number of reasons, but I thought the fact that they moved to the rainiest place in the lower 48 so that they could actually go around without being noticed as vampires. So the... The UV light thing is an issue. Um, They wear bunches of sunscreen when they're outside, big sunglasses, that kind of thing. Um, Their money is, if they've been around for a couple hundred years, it's likely that they have a whole bunch of money. And they can be smart about that in terms of where they invest it and how they do their banking. Or they could be stupid about it, like leaving it in a sock under the mattress. So smart vampires fly under the radar because they don't eat people. They just sort of sit from them a little bit. He's like a mosquito, a large, well-dressed mosquito without the disease vector. But like, they have to be smart about the way they feed. They have to be smart about the way they look and the fact that they don't age and get around that with some creative lying. Um, They have to be smart in their investments and avoid garlic. That's, I mean, unfortunately, I do have some vampires who live in France, which is a trying place if you cannot have garlic, but it, you can get around it if you're sensible. So I had to think about ways to make that work, like what kind of allowances he would need, what kind of adjustments from a normal human's day-to-day life that he would need. And also, I did give him a Volvo, but... I wrote the Volvo in in 2004, so my vampire Volvo of Great Justice is the first one. I just wish that to be clear. Understood. (laughs) (laughs) We're obviously talking about monsters and everything today in the run at Halloween, and I have to say, Vivian, that you have created some amazing monsters, particularly in book two. As You might guess that book two is my favourite, but I just love all the little creatures that um, Lilith summons. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more about these, the, the well monsters and about we're hedgehogs? I mean, where do you get these ideas for such fabulous creatures to complement your world building? Oh, we're hedgehogs is a line that Greta threw off as just like, calm down, dude, I got this. 
but the other ones, the well monsters and the hair monsters are actually, I kind of borrowed them from MR James's ghost stories. The hair monster is out of a story called the diary of Mr. Pointer. And the well monster is out of a story called the treasure of Abbot Thomas. And if you go and read those stories, you will see exactly where I get them, like where I got the idea for something like that. And again, what I have done with those character, those uh, animals, creatures, is in the source material, they're legitimately horribly terrifying. Like, they don't read M.R. James if it's like windy and dark outside, it will really screw you up. Um, but having things that are in the like original material be really, really terrifying and awful and seeing what if those things were commonplace in this world and they'd be kind of cute. Like that would be really fun to see if I could do that. And that's also the whistle monster um, is also from an MR James story called, Oh, whistle and I'm called and I'll come to you, my lad. And it is also legitimately terrifying in its original form, but it's, I'm doing some work with an artist I know to hopefully put together some posters uh, with the various species and subspecies of well monsters and hair monsters and like their coats, their breed, that kind of thing. So hopefully we'll get that done in like a year ish, because I would love to have that like out in the world so people could get a visual reference on them. I have to say the whistle monster I recognized instantly and I thought it was quite cute, but it didn't occur to me, of course, the treasure of Abbot Thomas and the well monster because your creatures are just so small and cute. And I was like, I want one. They're so adorable. I just did not make a connection. But yes, of course, now you say it, I absolutely understand. Yeah. The thing in the well that like put its arms around, it was a bag that the man was trying to like pull out of this niche in the well. And he thought it contained treasure. So he was pulling this bag that felt like it was made of leather or something slimy, leather towards the edge and then it put its arms around his neck and pressed its face into his at which point he basically lost his full mind understandably but the way mr james does it and the way i do it they're not that differently described it's just i look at it in a completely different lens and it's this is sort of to see if i can to see if i can make that work and mostly it does seem to work um, I know I'm like really annoying a lot of MR James fans by like cutifying his terrible monsters, but it's it's an interpretation. I if they don't like it, then they don't have to read it. So if there's anyone out there who hasn't yet read your books, uh, Vivian, what uh, what would your pitch be um, to get them to give them a go? The basic premise is that Dr. Greta Helsing sees dead people. They're everywhere in her office from four to eight by appointment and on an emergency basis if necessary. She is a completely bog-standard human who lives in London and is running a clinic for supernatural creatures. Read these if you like Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And if you're interested in reading about Monsters who don't have to be monsters because that's what they are created as. Monsters who can choose to be people, different types of people. What it means to find your own family, what it means to 
understand who you are and what you are and what you want to be. And there are ghouls and well monsters and hair monsters. So it's, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but overall it is about coming home and what home means and how you can determine where that is. Wow, that's a really good ending to end on. I like that summary, coming home. I was going to say, yeah, I really like that. <laughs> well, Vivian, it's been utterly wonderful to sit and talk about old monsters in a brand new way. And we're hedgehogs and hair monsters and whale monsters. It's all been fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.